Hi, and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna end. Hey everyone, hi, I'm Bob Hotard in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm uh, Jim Jones in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. I'm sitting here kind of halfway between uh, Gloria Gaynor's uh, tune, I Will Survive, and Johnny Rivers' uh, I've Got the Rock and the Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu, because right over my shoulder is about 3,000 vinyl records. So I'm very much in a musical, what music would apply during this time. Actually, I'm being a little silly about that because uh, during the last couple of days and weeks, I've really looked to the past and thought very much about this statement. We have nothing to fear, but fear itself, made by Franklin Delano Roosevelt during his first inaugural address in 1933 in the height of uh, depression, one of those defining moments in American history. Because I think we're probably right in the midst of a defining moment for many people as I get feedback from a lot of people, as I read the news and current events, and as I use my own lens at looking at what is really going on in the country during this time. Well, Jim, and I think it's almost imperative that we say, because it's it's hard to be dated and current at the same time, to, today is March 24th. We'll release this uh, episode a, a week from now. Uh, but just to give everybody kind of a, uh, a point of where we are in time, especially if you listen to, the, uh, to this particular episode around this time of uh, year, if you listen to it into the, you know, later on, it won't matter. But uh, things are changing daily, uh, laws, rules, are being implemented. And I just have to jump back just a little bit and say, I don't know if I needed to Im- impose a no disco uh, limit on our podcast or not, but I'll, I'll go with it. I'll, I'll accept Gloria Gaynor this one time. <laughs> All right, but let's get back to the serious stuff. That could be appropriate. There you go. Exactly. Not all disco is bad, just most of it, in my opinion. But maybe I need to have new ears and new eyes one night when I hear some of the music. It, I just had to live through it. So that's the, that's the difference. Maybe I'm influenced because in the acts of uh, many Americans and celebrities showing resiliency during this time, they're now coming out with playlists that you can use and also certainly films that you might want to watch during this time. It's very unusual to see how Americans are responding, particularly what's happening online through the wonders of Zoom. Here I am listening to you and doing the podcast, but at the same time, there's some very basic elements about communication that are going on between families and people. So I think that speaking about the coronavirus, in many ways, even though we have substituted for this session, instead of doing law enforcement, which we had announced for session three, We are talking about a different kind of enforcement because we can see by the actions of governors and administrators in Washington and all the 50 states 
that there is a type of enforcement that has been placed upon people in terms of limiting some movement or enforcement in terms of being tested. This is very appropriate in many ways, and there is overlap, Bob. When you just said that there uh, about Zoom, and it's something that we were already using for a, a couple of weeks in, in common, uh, of course, it, it's part of my everyday job, but how many people didn't know Zoom existed before the third week in March or the second or, or fourth week in March uh, 2020? And or, or had never been on a web conference or even a conference call, uh, an audio conference call without a, a web connection. It's just amazing. And so I, I want to share right away, a, a colleague of mine uh, posted on our, our message board, well, uh, I just got off a video conference with my eight-year-old's first grade or second grade, whatever it was, teacher. Now, not only are people working from home, but because their kids aren't going back to school and they have to do distance learning. You could have an elementary student or a couple and a middle school uh, student or a couple and a high school student. And, a, and they all are on different broadcasts or webcasts, if you will, are all doing different types of distance learning. What does that do to a parent? Talk about challenging. Well, well, first, it, it changes your identity because you're no longer just a working parent. You're a working parent and teacher and facilitator, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also, it challenges your uh, integrity. But I'm going to save that story for, for later on. It, it's just, this is, a, this is definitely a brave new world. Brave new world, indeed. The reason I use that quote and thought of that quote about having nothing to fear but fear itself is because I'm sensing a lot of fear in the articles that I'm reading, in my online news feeds, in the news that I'm watching. It's a fear, or if not maybe to that degree, an anxiety and angst and anticipation about where people are in their lives. In fact, one of the articles that I was reading was by a medical professional, and she was hearkening back to our conversation, our dialogue in the first episode about identity, where we said that certainly we can identify ourselves by our ethnicity and our age or our religion, but another way of identifying ourselves is by our state of being, our state of mind. She said, how will we define ourselves by our actions now? Who are we? And I related to that because as a citizen of this country, I'm thinking about the state of mind, the state of being that we have when, if we have a person who has designated themselves as the wartime president, then during such a time when we would consider it a war of sorts, who are we? We have a lot of history with world wars where we talk about how Americans pitched in, Americans were resilient, Americans were involved in producing, they were creative. And I think back about the kinds of dilemmas that are being presented, especially from this woman who's talking about the medical field, when maybe some of the fears, especially that occur in the medical field from the news that I'm reading, have to do with having to use masks over. What danger do I present to myself? 
I'm reading about doctors out in the Los Angeles area who, when they get off a shift, go and sleep in their cars because they don't want to take the risk of spreading the virus to their families if they go home. Holy cow. Wow. I'm reading about making choices about who do you give a bed to? Because for some people, going into the emergency room could mean you've broken something or there's some type of unknown disease or an ache or a pain that you have. But does that take priority over someone who's elderly and more susceptible to the coronavirus? Does that take place over, take priority over anybody who comes in and you're want, you want to be able to provide medical service to someone who might be a carrier of the coronavirus? Wow. Yeah. Making these choices, again, harkens back to this idea, who are we in these moments and what kind of dilemmas are being presented? Like you were saying in the in an emergency room, it's a it's the instant Titanic dilemma. Women and children first. Who who gets saved? Who gets the test? Who gets taken care of? And uh, wow, I just no one wants to be in those in those situations. And it it also goes to to show what the what the medical profession is going through right now without without asking for it or without. Uh, I mean, yes, sure, it's part of their job. It's part of who they are. The difference between a a medical practitioner from a nurse up to the most, you know, talented surgeon in everyday life per se and during quote unquote wartime or times like this is completely different is it not it's it's like night and day well sure it is the sense of identity that people have during a crisis or a pandemic certain roles are changed the identity and sense of trust and belief that we have in a doctor increases, in a nurse increases. But just the other day, I turned the front page of the newspaper over where I could see the inside, pages two and three. And on page three, in terms of thinking about the people that we turn to in times of crisis, I'm reading a full page by a market chain here in Boston that is basically It's a tribute to all of the people who are checking out customers with groceries, who are stocking the shelves as fast as they can, and they are speaking and referring to them in terms of being first responders during this crisis. Now, they're building these plastic shields to protect them from customers who might be in a line, but just within the matter of weeks, The whole sense of identity and how we look upon the people that are working in the grocery stores and providing us with what we need to eat have changed in our perception of them. And again, I'm just reminded what a crisis can do. Yep. H-E-B, our our grocery food chain here in San Antonio and and South uh, Central Texas, the same thing. These people are barely, if they are making minimum wage or they're making minimum wage plus whatever, they're not getting a, a whole lot, and and now here they're put in front of everyone who comes to the store or comes through their line, and so you see the heroism that's involved there in a, in a way, and I can see that comparison of of a first responder, not in the same way that they're saving lives, but they're certainly kind of putting themselves on the line, if you will, or putting their lives on the line just for someone to be able to pick up groceries. It's not like you'd never think that you'd see the day, but it's just that's something totally unexpected. 
I mean, I love it because now people are are looking at a checker as a human being, and you don't see the uh, you don't see the people uh, berating them for not you know scanning something wrong or or getting their uh, uh, the the three cents difference on their zucchini squashes uh, uh, messed up. Uh, you know, they're not flying off the handle. Well, now, oh, okay, wow, you have to do this job all day long for for what you're getting paid and uh, putting yourself and your health on the line. Because you're being exposed to who knows who have you know maybe maybe uh, infected or have the virus and and not even know it. Our society is made up of so many different type of types of professions and institutions. I don't know. I don't think I'm the only one who hasn't developed a new lens for looking at the people that are there in the checkout line when we go with our groceries and the people who are checking us out. Because a lot of times, you know, economically, we could have this hierarchy in our country, which goes from the billionaires on down to different levels and occupations and employment. And many times it's the people who are paid minimum wage, where because they're making minimum wage, we don't look upon them in the same way. I'm not saying that we feel elitist compared to them, but all of a sudden, the people that feed us and facilitate us in getting our food have taken on a new sense of identity. And I hope we're aware of that. And if we aren't, maybe we'll just see a huge full page ad that makes us, that reminds us to think about what some of these people are sacrificing by being there doing those types of jobs. And you mentioned overall this, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's apprehension almost every minute, every, every hour of the day. You know, you're going to see it if you check your news feed. You're going to hear it if you watch uh, TV. When you, you know, speak to a friend, it's going to come in the conversation. Can we still learn from the last time something this, you know, we've talked about 9-11 being the, the defining moment that's changed in more modern history. But what about the Great Depression when there was this economic and socioeconomic downfall of our society? What can we learn from that era and apply it to what we're going through now? Have you thought about that? Yes, I have, because you see, personally, I had my own experience with 9-11 just across the highway from the Pentagon and being able to see the large black plumes of smoke rising into the air when I was standing there with literally thousands of Pentagon employees that had been released to try and catch trains back into Washington, D.C. I was in China when there was a SARS epidemic and remember having, before I could exit the plane and arriving in China, having people in white coats and masks come aboard and put these little instruments in front of us to take our temperature before we could get off the plane. And then seeing the graffiti that was up on the walls in Hong Kong because it had pictures of rats and talking about SARS and this whole idea of how rats were sp- possibly spreading the disease. Personally, because uh, I happened to be in the Naval Center in San Diego in boot camp, basically, then there was a recurrence of some spinal meningitis, which had been an epidemic at one point, but also concurrently with a measles epidemic. And I didn't get the spinal meningitis, but I was confined and quarantined because I had gone in to have some blisters on the heels of my feet from tight boots checked, and 
there I was. I caught the measles while I was inside the hospital and I was quarantined. So as I look back, I think about this whole idea of uncertainty, uncertainty, which for a lot of people, it was, what's going to happen? You know, this happened during the depression. Am I going to lose my life savings? Am I out of desperation going to not be able to afford to buy some food? Some of us still have the images from photos of people standing in soup lines. In some cases, it's choices of life and death by doctors and medical professionals. I think there's a lot of paranoia also. I'm talking about a lot of emotions that prevailed during the time of the Depression and whenever there's any type of crisis. And some of these emotions, which would include the paranoia of it, I don't know whether you've had the experience, but I've seen people in a market actually back away if someone coughs and they don't have a mask on. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know whether that's always classified as paranoia, but I know that people are just looking at each other when they're in common places in different ways. So here's what happened to me uh, last week. I went to, so third week in, uh, uh, in March, I, I went to a doctor's appointment and at the end went up to the counter to pay. And it's kind of an open counter. So it's still behind their, their door to the waiting room. But I believe there wasn't anyone else standing or waiting. And I walked up and was there first. One person came to my right, but stayed, you know, a good eight to 10 feet away and waited till I was finished. I gave the card to make the payment and was getting ready to sign the paper for the credit card payment. And someone walked up to me and stood at the counter like inches away from my shoulder. And we talked about this, I think, in the first episode, that moment of choice. What do I say? What do I do? Literally, I didn't notice, you know, it hit me at a, in a second. And I said, well, the first thing in my mind is, well, all I have to do is sign this paper. So I'm going to sign it, give it back and walk out, not make eye contact. But I did not interact with the person. I know, I'll say this, for me, that was not the right thing to do. I should have stepped back and said something to, you know, we, now we have to learn how to be polite or how to, how do you handle that situation? What do you say to that person? You know, you, you don't want to be the person that says, have you not been watching the news? You know, <laughs> what are you living in a cave? Do you not, do you, you don't believe the coronavirus is something real? Of course you don't want to be the jerk. Maybe some people do and they don't care, but how do you start that conversation of, you know, ex excuse me, you know, were you here first? Did I mess up? Could you stand, you know, just a, a few feet, a few feet further away from me than six inches? And, you know, it, it hits home. It's not just, oh, I've got to practice social distancing. I have to learn how to converse and to communicate with people differently. And I, I'm sure there have been arguments and, and who knows what along where those lines where that's been concerned. Who was there first? Who has the right to stand there? What is your, you know, your claim space at, at any moment in time? This is you, Bob Hotard, asking yourself the identity question, who am I in this moment? Because certainly we all have a sense of, I'm the person, well, I'll use myself as an example. I'm the person that sat in the back of the classroom in school because I didn't want to be called upon. I just wanted to be quiet and make some drawings inside my notebook, which was behind the class text, which was held up in front of me. 
I wasn't someone like George Bazaar, who sat up in front and always wanted to raise his hand and get the right answers. We have a sense of our own identity. It would be out of character for us at times to say, excuse me, I think you're standing a little bit too close there. Uh, I wonder if you'd mind walking away because there is a pandemic going on. I was reading about an instance of this in one of the local grocery chains where some people were self-policing. They were self-policing because they felt that someone who seemed to be coughing more than what they thought they should be coughing if you're a healthy person, basically said, back off to this person. And in addition to that, then when you know how it is, this is a study in human behavior. Yes. No one wants to speak up. But then when the first person does it, and all of a sudden we get a sense of courage or maybe just a a sense of uh, being a little righteous at times and saying, yeah, don't do that. Back off or go over there. It's, it's just, again, a study of human behavior, a study of how people act in character and out of character, depending upon the times in which we live. This is why I'm a big fan of, of Survivor. It's 40 seasons. It's, it's just fascinating. What a human experiment. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, whether you like it or not, there's that point in the, in the show when the, the tribe loses the challenge and they know they're going to go to tribal council. And what happens? Paranoia sets in. Who's going to talk to who? Who's going to go out looking for a hidden immunity idol? Who's pairing up? Who's talking to you? Who's saying what to? It's become almost a, you know, they talk about the paranoia that they know is setting in while it's going on and with each other. And so you talk about the, the human experiment. It's, you know, now we're living that kind of thing in a, on a daily basis. Uh, an interesting article about locally here in San Antonio was a San Antonio Aquarium. That for some reason, with all of the suggestions and all of the rules about who's who can stay open and who not, decided they were just going to stay open. And the police department actually had to go and try to convince them to say, look, you know, you're violating the, the code and the rules that the mayor and, the, and actually the uh, uh, Bear County Commissioner, Nelson Wolf, has, has uh, laid out for the city and for the area, for the county. You know, you should not be open. But the other thing that I found fascinating was people were going into, into the aquarium and walking around in close proximity and not practicing social distancing. And then you begin to think, like, not what's wrong with it. What are they thinking? Why, why, are they, why do they believe so vehemently that it's not going to happen to them or this isn't going to happen? And it, it comes back to whether or not you believe that. This is not something real, but something that is going to really change your life. I wonder if people in general, some people are saying, you know, it's going to blow over and everything's going to go back to normal. And I, I, I don't, I think the, the majority of us maybe, or, or at least I, I know I think it, it's, it's never going back. It's, you know, we're past that point already. Well, personally, I'm reminded of my son. When we were on decades ago, when he was just a little tyke, we're on the beach in Padre Island. My wife and I are watching the kids play out and surf. And all of a sudden, James comes running out of the water, screaming at the top of his lungs. And of course, we notice it. 
we get up, we run toward him, but then other parents noticed it and they don't know what to do. What, what's going on? They're, they're at a loss. So they call their kids, come in, come in. And, you know, it's this whole idea when the first person says something, everybody else responds in kind. But basically, he'd been stung by man of wars, a group of man of wars. We didn't know exactly what to do, but we took him down to the station where the lifeguards were hanging out. And they uh, did some procedures with him, and they were going to give him uh, some type of shot. He looked up at me with pleading eyes and said, is it going to hurt? Well, you know, how many times do we as parents, we have to think about, you know, whether it's when you get your first shots for school or your inoculations for whatever it is that you're going to do. We don't say, oh, gosh, you betcha. You better grit your teeth and hold on to me because, oh, baby, man, you're going to feel the sting of this one. Doctors don't do that even because as the, the leaders in their lives, as parents, we're going to basically make a decision about how much we can give to them, how much we can expose to them about what the truth is. It's a real dilemma at times on higher levels because now, we have people who are medical professionals going on television every night. We have leadership in the administration going on television every night, doctors in hospitals, and they have to make these type of decisions about how much of the truth to really give us. Because when I'm looking around and I say that one day they've had 600 plus deaths in Italy, the second day, 700, the third day, 800 plus deaths, when today is the first day that finally the United States has gone over 100 deaths since the pandemic began, I got to wonder about decisions being made. Locally, the decisions of leadership came into play because we had the owners of the Bruins and the National Hockey League basically make a decision that they weren't going to pay the employees who worked inside the arena when they were laid off. And there were a lot of people doing what people do during times like this. We start to, to judge people, especially judge people that we're supposed to trust. And we think that in sports, those people have some responsibility. Don't they have some type of integrity when it comes to holding fast to protecting employees? And eventually, a decision was made that they would pay them if the NHL were going to cancel the rest of the games that were being played. This is affecting so many institutions and so many people, and many times we're looking for leadership to make tough decisions. We're at about we're we're at about the halfway point right now, and in the in the podcast, and like you said, there there seems to be a article doesn't come out or, or, you know, a few hours go by when something else is announced. Uh, here locally, they just announced today that school closures will probably happen through uh, most of April and the residents are asked to stay through, stay home through April 9th, but the closures will continue through the 24th and they're not sure if, if they'll remain through the, through the end of the year, uh, end of the school year sometime in, in May in this area of the country. I also think, and we, we talked about this earlier, not just the dynamic of, of how, a, how a parent or, or a, a single parent in a family unit just handles the, 
all of the juggling of the of the new education system that uh, we're we're faced with. How does the family dynamic change? How does you know just everyday things? You're not able to take kids to sports. The sports aren't aren't happening. So all of you know, think of how many people were just caught up in this routine of you know the kids are at school, then I got to go pick them up and take them to practice and blah 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 blah, and now all at home all the time. I'm also wondering when the stir crazy point is going to hit where already you're starting to see people share different ideas of, you know, here's what you can do while you're at home besides listening to a, a a nice podcast. But after that, or if you, if you can't uh, get a quiet time to listen to a podcast or multitask and listen to a podcast, what are some of the things that you can do? It's forcing us to have new eyes about family life, period. Whether no, no matter what kind of family you're in, single parent with single child, mixed family, blended family, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone is having uh, to face this time in new ways or with new eyes, for sure. I was reading an article where the question was, again, an identity question. Who will we be during this time? And the question was raised, will there be a failure of American imagination? And I thought to myself, what, what, is it, what does that mean? And, you know, I didn't really have to think about it as much as see how there were changes going on on the Internet and on my own news feed. You're listening to a guy and his wife who have been FaceTiming each day with our grandchild on the West Coast. And it's amazing how through technology and what we can do, we're getting together to think about how are we giving our preschool granddaughter some types of interesting activities that will keep her not just occupied, but will engage her so that there is some quote unquote learning going on. And at the same time, I'm also seeing the people who realize during this time that one of the greatest assets I think that we have during any type of crisis or pandemic, or maybe when people are having fears, is a sense of humor. I have seen some very creative ways. I was reading about this guy, and then I saw it also when I went to YouTube. There's this guy in Britain who's a sportscaster, but he's out of work right now. And because he's out of work, he's taken some normal scenes on the street in the UK Oh. And he turns him into play by play where he'll <laughs> nice. say, I like that. Bob and Jim, get ready, cross the street. And there you go. The light has just turned green. <laughs> James, Jimmy is at a handicap because he's pushing the stroller. Bob moves out in front, but there's a little girl in front of him. So he swerves to the left. And as he swerves to the left, he's inching toward the green light. And Jim is right behind him pushing that stroller. You know, I, I can't imitate it as well as this person but i'm thinking this is rich and yes. of course we all know that the whole youtube phenomena is everywhere as well as uh seeing a lot of people that just turn a video on their kids and watch them play or as my brother did i get a video from my brother in texas where they basically made an indoor obstacle course going under a chair having tape on the floor, on the carpet, pointing over to around the corner and everything. And we're sitting there watching it in glee and getting a chuckle out of this. And, you know, 
we needed to chuckle. Yes. We needed to get out of some of the heaviness over the last couple of days that we can feel. Maybe it comes from looking at the news and listening to the news. I've heard some broadcasters say, don't look at the news so much. Hmm. As someone who thought about current events and when I was in the classroom and I'm still committed to to learning, I'm just one of those people that is going to soak up some of that stuff. But I think we can we can balance that out with a little humor sometimes, a little perspective taking. Who, who knew that uh, being able to make a fort in the middle of the living room is now a skill that can be, maybe, maybe we all, maybe we need a family fort. <laughs> Turn off the TV, let's build a fort. We'll all just hang out and have a little, have, eat dinner in the fort tonight. Fort, have a fortnight. Okay, I won't go there. That's a play on words, but with the, with the gaming industry, which we haven't talked about yet either. But uh, of course, no. the, the, the humor part of it, the pets. So now the, the key thing with working from home is my, uh, my workmate, which is really their pet, you know, is, and you can say whatever you want about, you know, your, your workmate, who's your pet, because they're your pet and, and all the funny pictures of the dogs and cats and, uh, and what's going on. That's great comic relief. All right. So here that we have the bad situation of, of the ridiculous hoarding of toilet paper. No one knows why, how that happened, why it's happening. doesn't have anything to do with the coronavirus, but once it started, you can't stop it. So now then everyone can't get the normal amount of toilet paper. So what's going on between our family and, and uh, family members across the city? How many rolls do you have? Oh, I'm getting, some, I'm getting two more tomorrow. Or let me know if you all need some. We're, we're bartering for, for rolls of toilet paper because there's a, a ridiculous toilet paper shortage that doesn't have anything to do with the virus. And who would, who would have thought that, that you're, uh, you'd be uh, bartering for toilet paper, you know, in the middle of uh, March in 2020? Can't predict something like that. This is an excellent time, if you are not a student of human behavior, to Stop a moment when you're in a supermarket. Stop a moment when you're out in one of the essential businesses where people will go to. They've closed them, most of them down here, except for essential businesses. And just take a look at, at human behavior. Observe it, yes. Now, concerning toilet paper, <laughs> I have a couple of thoughts about that. Number one, I can remember as a young child when I used to go to my Grandpa Jones's farm in Creedmoor, Texas. Grandpa Jones still had an outhouse. And in going out to that outhouse, I would wonder as a young child, why is there a newspaper out here? I'm not going to read the news while I'm out here. <laughs> and I'd see all this newsprint in strips. And of course, I learned what exactly the function of that was. But I'll tell you what, Ouch. I did learn to appreciate toilet paper as a commodity in one way. When I go to the grocery stores, I'm watching human behavior and there's certain dynamics in place. One of those dynamics is just by the fact of being Americans in a capitalist country, why do we buy so much toilet paper? Because it's there. Because we can spend the money on it just like when we go out and didn't have a television or a stereo or whatever on our shopping list. We see something, we're attracted to it, and because we can afford it, we buy it, it's there. The other thing is the peer pressure thing. You know, you go up and whatever type of item it is, you didn't have it on your list initially, but maybe there's three or four cans of whatever or three or four packs of wipes or some type of cleansing material or something. 
and you see two or three people up there grabbing their share. And all of a sudden it sets in, maybe I should be buying that. They're buying it. Maybe you, you, you make a move to it because I see that it might be out next time that I'm here. Yes. And so you buy it. Again, the dynamics of human behavior. And, and I think it's kind of fun to, to watch this, maybe just, again, just standing there, just like I'm also observing the behavior of the media, because now I'm seeing more ads by Big Pharma who wants us to trust them during these times. And the ads are not just about a particular medicine, but about Big Pharma themselves. I'm seeing ads for miracle Grow because spring just started. And miracle Grow has grabbed this perspective of, don't forget, when you have the opportunity to go out and enjoy spring, miracle Grow will be there for you. Again, human behavior. Interesting. miracle Grow. I, I've got to jump in here, Jim, because... I walk our dog, you know, around the neighborhood. We It's been kind of rainy this week, and we're, like I've mentioned uh, possibly before, and I've talked to people about, uh, we have these live oak trees that shed twice a year, and now they're sprouting the, the, the pollen spores that just get over everything, and there's green pollen dust around, which is also kind of a bad timing because everyone's got, you know, sniffling, sniffling noses and runny eyes and... and uh, uh, coughing from congestion to begin with. And so uh, uh, you have that to deal with. But I've observed it seems like there's a lot less yard work going on. In some cases, in some cases not. But, you, you know, you you wonder, is that in, on anyone's radar even? And then you hear it's okay to go outside and exercise. So I, I think we're going to see maybe an uptick in that, it may possibly in the coming weeks, where people realize with the nicer spring weather – Hey, this is okay. I can do this in my own backyard, front yard, keep my social distancing from everyone else, but still uh, enjoy the the outdoors and, and nature and use the products that those companies are, are trying to get me to buy. Again, we are consumers. And a lot of our consumption is determined by what we see in the media. Personally, I dig all that because uh, I'm already looking at the news and my news feeds and everything. But it's interesting because I'm also aware, and maybe this is the teacher in me, that this is the time through the media where we have to be aware of propaganda. We have to be aware of propaganda through mass media and how true or how false the messages that we're receiving. Let's face it, in our country, we have a lot of divides because of politics and political parties. And many times, this type of blame game that goes on between parties of what was done, what wasn't done, is going to go on. And sometimes it's just misinformation and propaganda. I'm thinking about also what happens of how easy it is to go online and sell products. Products that have to do with, well, I mean, just to name one, a toothpaste that you can use that kills the coronavirus. Gee, I wonder how many hundreds of thousands of dollars was made off that. I, I, I see a lot of instances of this because the other day I got a call. My calls are screened. I did not answer. But basically, someone over the phone saying, and we can give you, if you sign up for this service, a number that you can call into and a physician that will diagnose you and tell you what type of treatment that you would be eligible for because you have paid for this service. And people, through 
the online services that they have through the internet technology are, I don't know whether they've done this before or not, but I just read that there's a class from Yale University, Psychology and Good Life. And it talks about human behavior, good living, making the right choices. 895,000 people have registered for this class, which will be offered online free. Now, I think Yale University is reputable, but there's a lot of stuff online in the media that we just have to be cautious about because this is the time that the criminals come out of the woodwork. There, there's also the, the price gouging. Now that we know some things are in uh, high demand, the prices start to, to shoot up. And, and who's regulating that? And who's uh, sometimes just a, a few extra uh, minutes or even a, a half hour of doing some price investigation online can save you quite a bit of money right now. Because, you know, you could think the going rate for XYZ product is uh, $120 when in actuality it should be half that, even half the normal markup price. So there, there's false claims and there's price gouging. And yeah, most definitely, there's a lot to kind of navigate through during all of this. Let me ask you a quick question here. We've, we've talked a little bit about past events. Uh, you've mentioned something to me personally outside the podcast about Katrina. And how did that period of time affect how you look at what, what we're going through today? Because that was a little bit more close to where, not only where we live, but also obviously because I have family in Louisiana, hits a little closer to home. I'm interested in hearing about that. Well, partially the news through the media, and because there's a network of teachers that I know down there, teachers that were living and teaching in the area, and I knew uh, two students who were going to Loyola. So I was getting some feedback. During these times, I, I like to reach out and connect with some people to get some feedback. And basically, a lot of the things that were happening were, again, people panicking and the sales and grocery stores. A lot of people were hoarding. And there was also a lot of theft because it was very hard for law enforcement in some of the areas that were really hard struck or submerged by Katrina to be able to police to enforce the laws, to not have, to have theft kept at a minimum during this time. Of course, the other thing is, is that unfortunately there was profiling being done. And because of the large African-American community in the area, there was a lot of profiling done in terms of who were people through the stereotyping that were targeted to be stopped, to be checked, to be asked where they were going. I know teachers that also volunteered to go down there and to offer their services for makeshift schools and to teach kids in schools. And these were people that were from different parts of the United States. So also they were going into another culture. And when they went into another culture, a lot of it was a culture based upon poverty levels of many people down there. And they were just aghast. It was an education, not only because of the devastation of Katrina, but also because of what they experienced personally with the students and the communities that they were in. Again, watching this from a distance, besides what I heard from them, I was thinking, this is a region of America. Who are we when disaster strikes 
in a region of America and I can say, well, it happened here. I'm safe. Was I making an extra effort to support the services to people down there that needed it? Or was I holding back, waiting for other people to be able to do their part in that? I can relate to that because that very idea of knowing the area, seeing families and landmarks that I've, you know, personally been to, lived around, been by and and talked with and and seeing a friends of ours home just completely devastated that that thought. But now let's bring it full fast forward to today. How does this affect someone who is Chinese? What about just anyone who who looks Asian? Are we thinking, and we've talked a little bit about this before, with identity, and uh, and now obviously the integrity of how do we approach someone, or what happens when we see someone like you talked about? What about those people policing someone because they coughed? Well, what if the what if xenophobia sets in, where hey, you're Asian, you may have come from. Uh, I'm just going to assume that you've traveled from out of country from China, and how silly that is, but. It's a reality, is it not? It's something that we're, we're having to face and to think about. Well, I don't know how many people know what the term xenophobia means. Maybe because of a new language that we've adapted, protocols, language that has to do with maybe these uh, people that we call disease modelers. What the heck is that? I've heard reports, I don't think I've heard this many people who are epidemiologists in my life in such a concentrated <laughs> time. What do all these words mean? And you're right that one of them that unfortunately, in a negative way, raises its ugly head is xenophobia. I have been fortunate in that I did some teaching in China, and I have many students that I taught who in high school that were accepted to American colleges. You know that over the last couple of weeks, American colleges have closed. So these have been students from another country that have basically been told with every student, not just them, but every student, leave the campus. You've got five days to pack up and leave. Take your belongings with you, clear out. For many people, this was basically being put out on the street. We live in the Boston area in Brookline, but we live basically in the immediate area of about 14 universities. So we saw a lot of students as we were walking on some sun, sunny days uh, that were trying to move out their clothing and their belongings and everything. I was calling Chinese students that I knew to kind of check up and see basically, have you any difficulty in storing items? Do you need a home? Now, many of the students are now older and they're in graduate school, and some of the graduate students did not have to basically uh, assisted too much because they uh, were going to remain on campus. I could still store some things for them. But I have read about instances where because at the highest levels of administration in our government, this has been referred to as the China virus, which automatically loads it with this negative connotation of that was where it started. Those are the ones responsible. Blame. It's their fault. They felt a little awkward about that. It was more than being awkward. They've had such good experiences in the United States, 
But even in China, I've had some people from Shanghai and Beijing tell me where when you leave an apartment building in China, you are checked at the door because you can't get out of the building until you have your temperature checked. And if it's rising or it seems a little above normal, not going to be allowed to get out. You might be suspect of having some of the symptoms. In addition to that, there are people there that have apps on their phones that you can get so that you don't go outside a certain area. This is part of the whole kind of containment that is being practiced. But at the same time, for anybody that tries to get around these rules, the enforcement of these rules, and there are always people that will try to do that, these people are shunned. There will be comments made aloud about them because, again, we look upon them as pariahs in society now because whether they are or they aren't, it can be possibly conceived that they're spreading the, a disease. Now, I don't know how predominant this is in the campuses of my friends, my Chinese friends and students that I know, but I know that it's been written up in some stories in the local newspapers in Boston that some people have made comments about being around Chinese, it's by the way they look, by their identity in appearance. And that's what I fear, that it now it's, it's going to be anyone who, ha, who is or looks Asian, which is just, it's terrible, but it's something that we're probably going to be faced with on the extreme. So we're at the, we've got about five minutes left, and I, I think the best way to end our episode this week is to say how do you navigate through through all this? What is the, you know, if you could tell someone one thing, give them advice or what's your what's your nugget or what's your little piece of hope that you could give to someone, what would that be? Uh, I'll start it off because I I think I gave a uh, just a quick motivational talk at the end of our UX uh, essay meeting a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, thrilled to be able to do that and uh, humbled to be asked to do that and one of the things I, I pointed pointed out was, you know, you, you're going to go through through tough times. And, and really, we were just on the cusp of this. So it, the coronavirus hadn't really kicked in too, too much, although it was our, our first uh, a virtual meeting. So we knew it, things were going to change. But I recall two things. One is, you know, the, the old do what you can do, control what you can control. Uh, and I'll throw this in for for you and for all the people in Boston, the Bill Belichick, do your job. But I kind of said that, you know, you kind of have to take that back a little bit. It's not just doing your job. Do what you can right now. And I, I changed it to me, practice your craft. This is the time when maybe you get to spend, you, you know, all those times when you wanted to spend more time at home or with your family or with someone else, or you you had more time to investigate, read listen, talk, whatever. Now's the time to do that. Take advantage of it. And I think the second thing I would say also would be to, one word, above all else, simplify. Simplify your life and you'll navigate through this much easier when you stop worrying about things that normally seem important, maybe. Maybe. Maybe, you know, what you drive, where, how you look, where you go, things that you normally do, you know, status doesn't really mean that much right now during these times. No one's looking at you. You're inside. Uh, so simplify your life. What, what would be your, what would be your answer to that? What's your words of wisdom for, 
for uh, everyone to to kind of get through this time from your perspective, Jim? Well, Bob, you know, I have some experience, but I don't know if I have any wisdom. These are unusual circumstances. And as I said earlier, these are defining moments for people in history, especially the younger that they are and they haven't experienced some of the epidemics or having to stand in line to get polio vaccine. So I would think in terms of basically the word, the concept of agency, agency, doing something, because I think we can all do something constructive. One of the most basic, because this is a time in history that we may never see again, hopefully. And if you're doing it for posterity, as I am, write down, write down, have a journal, have a pad of paper where you write down some observations you've made either humorous or sad about what's happening with the underserved in our communities. I was just thinking the other day about what happens in the home where we have self-isolation and there's domestic violence or there are foster children who are victims of abuse. Write it down. Write down some of the things for posterity that, that, that are occurring and probably you'll find that in the future, this is going to be very valuable pretty much like when the Black Plague was going on and Shakespeare uh, and other people were documenting what was going on. The other thing I think you can do is what we're seeing happening already. I must have gotten at least 15 calls just in this last four days from people. They know I'm a little bit older. They know I'm retired. And they're people that I used to work with, that I used to teach with, saying, how are you doing? And some of them make a joke saying, we're just checking up on the old folks. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm, I'm not disheartened by that. But reach out because the, the use of a telephone, in my old landline, or even the internet sending an email message is so important because for some people, we seem to forget they don't always get the communication that they need. I was reading about how a lot of the senior communities have basically said to children, I'm sorry, but you can't come and see your parents right now. And it breaks their heart, but this is the perfect opportunity to reach out through other means of technology, whether it be, I don't know how many people in those communities might have a computer, but a landline, an iPhone or something. The other thing that I would say is, is that, you know, there's a beginning, a middle and an end to everything. We may be in the middle or the beginning right now, but there will be an end. We will prevail. And it might be easy to say that, but these things have occurred in cycles in the past. And I think that it's going to be something that at least with our lens, our sense of thinking that maybe you have new eyes and looking at this, look at it with new eyes with an eye on the future and the end possibly. I love that. Make, make connections, make connections. Most definitely. Jim, thanks again. Uh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tease our next episode. Who knows what our, our, uh, uh, episode four, uh, title or, or subject or topic will be. Let's, let's keep it open and surprise everyone. What do you think? Sure. Let's, let's create our own playlist. There you go. I like that idea. Since like I said, I'm sitting in front of 3000 Vinyl records, uh, I could certainly uh, use a couple. Can we can we still call it a mixtape? <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah, why well, de- desert island uh, mix, right? Exactly. 
and and I promise, no no more no more disco. I, I'll go into the hard rock or heavy metal. There we or the go. Blues. There we go. All right, the blues. We can all agree on the blues. All right, Jim. Thanks very much, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you, Bob. Well, there you have it. And we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas. Our goal, as Jim says, is to make you think. And after you've thought about each topic, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE and join us in the Season 1 Dialogue as we explore topics like identity, integrity, law enforcement, and immigration. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. HNE is recorded in San Antonio, Texas at the studios of Game Day Media Enterprises. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes.